Well, welcome. If you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, it is so great to have you here with us, and thank you for choosing to be here. If you're new or newish, we hope that you will find this a place uh, that you can call home. Because I'll tell you what, man, God is doing some amazing things. Can I tell you, every time we do an infant baptism and he holds them up, I want to go, Sanawenya! Like every time. Every time he does it, like first service, I was like, every part of me, I wanted to do it out. I'm like, that'd be really distracting. Don't do that, Jason. So maybe the next infant baptism, we just all do it and then I don't feel awkward. Um, one of the things I want to highlight, some really cool things that God is doing at Zion, because here's what I want you to hear. Zion seeks to be a place where everybody can belong. You do not have to believe to belong, to be a part of what God is doing here. And here's the thing. I know that we have people from all over in different places in their faith journey. I know of atheists that come to church that are just checking it out, wanting to know what this church thing is. People who've walked away from Jesus. People who've been following Jesus their entire life. We want everyone to know that this is a place that you can call home. And if you are looking for a church home, maybe you're just exploring or you haven't found a church or, or maybe you're in that transitional place or new to the area, I'll tell you, this is a pretty awesome family to be a part of. Uh, a couple things I want to highlight that God has been doing over just this last week, and they are points of celebration, not to highlight Zion, but to highlight what Jesus is doing, the movement that God is growing in this church. Uh, last week, we had our new members class, our new members dinner. We had 32 people sign up for new membership. As we, we can give a clap. That's a big, that's an awesome thing. That's what Jesus has been doing. Now, you couple that with what God has been doing over the last couple weeks or a couple months before summer hit. Uh, we had about 40 people sign up to be a part of new members, which puts us at about 70 to 80 new members over the last seven months. That's incredible. That is God moving and doing things in our church. Uh, Last Monday, the Hero Makers, that's our men's ministry, they organized an event where we went to do axe throwing. How many of you guys have ever been, done axe throwing before? You want something that will make you feel like awesome? I was going to say manly, but I know women who love it and are way better at it than men. And we go axe throwing, and there's about 20, like a fun group. So we keep on talking, and I tell them, I'm like, you know, you are welcome to come to any time we have a Hero Makers event. He goes, do you have to be a member? Absolutely not. We just love to have you. We enjoyed the rest of the night. Well, I get a text on, I think it was Monday or Tuesday morning, and I didn't know this, but the owner of the Axe Place is a DJ. He's a radio DJ for a country station here in town. And he actually talks about Hero Makers on air and how cool it is to see this group of guys loving Jesus and just having a great time. And I was like, that's incredible. You know what's the best part about this? This is what church is supposed to be like. Church is supposed to be something when, when we're outside of this space, that people look and go, man, there's something different about you. Christians can have a lot of fun, amen? And to see that and to hear about that, and that's not to brag on Zion. I know there are a lot of great churches doing amazing things, but that is just so encouraging for me to hear as a pastor, as somebody who loves this church and is excited to see what God has been doing. Now, coming up next week for Thanksgiving, in partnership with a few other people, we are delivering over a hundred uh, over meals to over 100 people for Thanksgiving. Can we just give a big shout out? That's amazing. Now, that is not, again, the point of this is not to talk about how awesome Zion is. It's to talk about what God is doing in and through Zion. That God is, is working and beginning to stir a movement in our church, in our people. And if you don't have a church home, we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here. 
And if you have it, or maybe you're just checking it out, if you're not sure, we're so glad that you're a part of what is going on. Um, we are continuing our Galatians series called Passport to Galatia, where we're exploring what's going on in this church, this church founded by Paul in a, in a, a region called Galatia. Now, if you were here the last two weeks uh, before here, I always do a recap. And the reason why I do the recap is that, I don't know, I have a hard time remembering what I just said, much less what somebody said a day ago. How many of you guys ever walk out of here and like, I, I think it was good. I don't remember what he talked about. And am I the only... I get done preaching and I'm like, what? What did I talk about again? So we do a recap. And the purpose of that is that we are always a work in progress. We always need to be reminded. In fact, usually how we grow is not because we have a one-time event, but it's event and opportunity and experience and knowledge built upon each other. And over time, we begin to become formed. And so as we do these kind of recaps, it's to let you know, one, if you missed, hey, we get it but also because I think it's important for us from a learning perspective, for wanting to become like Jesus, that it's always good to be reminded. In the Old Testament, there's one word that's used a lot to Israel. Remember. Remember. Remember what God has done. Remember how I've, remember how the Lord. And so this idea of recalling is part of how we do our teaching here. So the last two weeks, uh, we talked about in Galatians 2, there's this conflict between Peter and Paul. Now, uh, Galatians is written to a church that is primarily a Gentile church, but there are Jews in the area. And Peter comes to Antioch, which is a city in Galatia, to experience what God has been doing there among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. And Peter is sitting down and he's eating with the Gentiles and he's eating their food, which is something he would not have done before. And then a group of Jewish believers from Jerusalem come and Peter, what the scripture tells us out of fear, walks away from the dinner table eating with the Gentiles and goes and eats with the Jews. And Paul calls him out and it causes this huge conflict between them. Now, there were three things that we dealt with over the last two weeks. And the primary thing was about conflict, but here are three truths that I think are important for us to understand when it talks about conflict, and then that's going to move us into our text for today. Here's the first takeaway. Conflict is going to happen. It's how you handle it that matters. Conflict is inevitable. Battle is optional. Conflict is two human beings, just the nature of who we are, we're not always going to get along. Second thing is this. Whether you are someone who avoids conflict or seeks out conflict, healthy people work through conflict. Now, let me be clear. What I mean by that is this, not that you always have to settle a dispute or conflict immediately. Sometimes it's good to take space. Sometimes we need time to work through things. Sometimes you need counseling or therapy to work through things. But ultimately, the desire of every Jesus follower should be is that we work through conflict to reconcile. Amen? That's part of what it means to follow Jesus. But that led us to this part. In healthy conflict, it's more about a, fun, uh, a filter than a funnel. Too many of us, when we go into conflict, we have a funnel approach to conflict. And here's what I mean by that. We funnel, we take all of our emotions, all of our thoughts, all of the gut instincts, all of the things that in that moment want to come out and we pour them all into one thing. And when it funnels out, we feel better, but the other person usually feels worse. You guys know what I'm talking about? where you're frustrated, you're angry, and so you funnel everything. And yeah, you've, you've let it all out, but the other person has just been vomited on with all of your hurt, and it usually leads to more conflict. 
Now, the Bible calls this a lack of self-control. And it's something that's easy to do. I've done it. But what Jesus calls us to, what the Bible calls us to, is a filter approach to conflict. And the difficult thing with filters is filters slow things down. Filters take out the pain. They take out the hurtful words. Filters are about taking out the unhelpful things so you can get to the real things. And so we look at scriptures and the Bible reminds us that God has called us. He is a God of self-control and we're supposed to be self-controlled. But when you're in conflict, it's hard to do that, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time that you were in conflict and you were like, wow, that went really awesome. That doesn't usually happen, does it? Usually you walk away frustrated. Sometimes you start off with a small conflict and it escalates into a major conflict. You know what I'm talking about? Like it started off as a little skirmish. Next thing you know, you got nuclear bombs being dropped in your home. So how do we handle that? Well, part of what happened uh, last week, we had Gary Burge, who is a therapist in our area, and Jennifer Colby joined me on stage and we had a Q&A and we talked about eight ways to filter through conflict, eight filters. And as we walked through, it was a great conversation. There were some really good things that took place. Also, just a quick side note, we did a, uh, there were a whole bunch of questions that we didn't get to answer. So we actually, Gary and I met this week and recorded and walked through most of your questions that came through. And that'll be on the Breakthrough Breakdown, which is Zion's podcast. I'd encourage you to check that out. Um, but here's what happened. So last week, I was talking to several people, just to kind of feel how they felt the morning went. And, and uh, one individual, if you remember this last week, I said, you know, we all need to take a beat. Sometimes when we're in conflict, we need to, you know, sometimes we need to step away or stop talking for a moment. How would we do that? And you might remember this. Gary said, you know, what, what I would encourage Christians to do is in that moment is grab your spouse's hand and say, you know, babe, I love you and I don't want to do that. Can we just pray together? And I looked over and I see a bunch of people doing this. <laughs> nope. Let's just be honest. And I talked to several people, not just one. I talked to probably 10 different people and they're like, you had me until you said I should pray. And at one point, one of my friends was like, if I said to my, my spouse in the middle of this, hey, can we just stop and pray? They'll look at me and go, shut up. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. And in that moment, I said, okay, Gary, that's ideal. That is the ideal. If we're actually following Jesus, if we're spirit-filled, even in conflict, that's what we hope we would do. But that's not very real, is it? Usually when you're in conflict, your emotions, your adrenaline is pumping. Everything gets the better of you and you say things you regret saying. And here's what I, I want to say. I, I talked to some other people, said, Jason, we had conflict and I tried the eight filters and it didn't work. I'm like, you're right, it didn't. Because here's what we forget. You can't undo or unlearn years of tactics and conflict strategies with one sermon or one counseling session or one book on how to handle conflict. You've developed a lifetime of how to handle, how to fight, and most of us have not learned how to do it well. It's not going to be undone because you heard a sermon that had eight filters on how to handle conflict. Just like someone who's an alcoholic saying, hey, I want a night without drinking. I'm sober. That's not how that works. Or a person who struggles with weight saying, I, I downloaded, downloaded the Weight Watchers app. I'm good. It's a lifetime. It's something that we have to strive to do. And in fact, you want to know the easiest way? This is the easiest way to, uh, to fail in something is to assume that because you've heard it one time that you've got it figured out. It's a process. There's only one thing that I know in Scripture that says that we can have an instantaneous quick fix. You guys ready for this? And this is mind-blowing. It's believing in Jesus. 
It's the only fix that promises it's instantaneous. The minute you put your hope and faith and trust in Jesus Christ, your relationship with God is repaired. End of story. But everything after that takes work. Everything else, learning to become who Jesus has called us to be, working through our tendencies, our emotions, our heartache, all the wrong waves we've learned to do life, that takes a lifetime to develop. It's not easy. And so here's what I want to do to encourage you. For those of you who are like, hey, I don't do conflict well. Choose one thing. Look at that list of eight filters and go, is there one thing in here that I know I really need to work on? And if you're married, go to your spouse and say, hey, babe, I'm, this is one thing I want to work on. Can we work on this together? And I'm going to fail, but I really want to work on this one thing. And then as that develops, you start to work on the second thing. It takes time and energy. And if you're not married, because guess what? Unmarried people, single people have conflict too. If you're single, find somebody you trust, somebody you care about, somebody you respect and say, hey, here's one thing that I want to work on to get better at in conflict. Have discussion, work through it together. That's how we grow in everything. We grow not because we become Christians and everything gets fixed. We grow when we put our hope and trust in Jesus and then we're filled with the Holy Spirit and we're in community and we begin to work on those things with the Holy Spirit's help and a community around us. Does that make sense? And so it's not meant to be a quick fix. It's something that takes time. Now, if you have your Bibles, um, I want to turn to Galatians 2. We're going to finish Galatians 2 today. And it's verse 15. Or if you have the passport booklets, which also has this. So I, I want you to picture for a moment, we just talked about this conflict between Peter and Paul. And we talked about this funnel versus filter. Now, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm reading into it, but I think I might be right. I could be wrong. I think when Paul is first frustrated with Peter and it says, I opposed him to his face. I called him out in public on what he was doing wrong. I think in that moment, that was Paul funneling his anger on Peter. Uh, how many of you ever been in a fight, an argument or a physical fight and like a couple hours later, you know what I should have said? You guys know what I'm talking about? You know that moment? You're like, oh, yeah, I should have said this. And you play the whole fight through your head again. You think of all the ways the zingers you could have said. When I was a kid, I had bullies that would mess with me. And I would think of all the awesome karate moves that I should have used. And next time I'll do, you know, like throat chops. I had this whole thing in my head. And here's the thing. We're really good at replaying things after the fact so that we become out victorious, right? Next time I get in a fight, I'm going to say this to my, my wife. Next time somebody messes with me, I'm going to punch them before they punch me. We think of all the ways that we could do it. But what if, what if in that space, instead of going to how to defend ourselves, how to be right, what if the Holy Spirit begins to work on us and we learn, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe in taking that beat, taking that moment, maybe as space, as we have more space between us, we begin to realize, I didn't handle that very well. This is what I think may have happened. I think what we're about to read next, before was Paul's funnel, I think the next verses are Paul's filter. Now, I could be wrong. The text doesn't say it. I'm reading into it. But when we read it, it's really eloquent and beautiful. And actually, we've developed a whole theology around reconciliation from these next few verses. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to stop here for a second. Um, Paul and Peter were raised in this Jewish system of racism. 
of ethnicism, believing that Jews were good. It wasn't about the color of your skin. It was about where you were from. Jews were good because God chose the Jews. And some Jews got it messed up. They thought they were chosen because they were special. When in reality, God chose them because the message they bore was special. They had a mission. And the Jews started going, we're good, they're bad. We're clean, they're unclean. And so they saw every Gentile as sinful because the Gentiles weren't called by Yahweh. The Gentiles didn't have God's word. The Gentiles didn't have Torah and the law. So they looked at the Gentiles and they even said they called them sinful Gentiles. Listen to how Paul writes about them in Romans chapter 1. He's talking in Romans, is dealing with a similar issue that the Galatians were. You have a Jewish church and a Gentile church, and they're at odds with one another. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul begins to call, uh, to call out all the things that are wrong with the Gentile world, with those who don't follow Jesus. And I just listen to this summary. This is verse 28, 128 in Romans. Furthermore, Just as they, meaning the Gentiles, did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they would would do what ought not to be done. He then lists all of the ways in which Gentiles are sinful. He calls them murderers, gossips, slanderers. They're sexually immoral. They hate God. They invent ways of doing evil. They don't just do evil. They create new ways to do evil. When I look at the world around us, would you agree it seems like the world is finding more and more creative ways to do evil? And that's what Paul calls them out. And you picture, I picture the Jews hearing that going, you tell them, Paul. Yeah, you call out those Gentiles. Yeah, you Gentiles are horrible people. Until you read chapter 2, verse 1, when Paul says, hey, Jews, what's your excuse? You had God's law. You knew all the things you were supposed to do. The, Jew, uh, the Gentiles never had God's law. You did, and yet you do the same thing. What's your excuse? See, Paul is beginning to call out that both Jews and Gentiles need Jesus. Now, this next verse in verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus. That word justified is interesting. It's not just a Justin Timberlake album or a TV show. Um, it's, It's a word that actually has meaning. And we tend to pollute this word when we make it a way of explaining or excusing our behavior. If I yell at my wife or I get angry with my kids or I blow it at my job, I'll make excuses. I'll justify my actions. That's not what biblical justification is. Biblically, the idea of justification, to be justified, means to be in right relationship, to be declared clean. Now, for years, what I was taught was that the Jews believed in works righteousness, that you had to do good deeds in order to be saved. But here's what the evidence of Scripture, as well as what we find within Judaism, tells us. That's not true. The Jews believed they were called and separated or separated from the world to be called by God to Yahweh. They were God's people. Now, I've been married to my wife. We're going on 20 years this year. And I'm amazed that she's tolerated me that long. In that time, here's the thing. Uh, If I treat her well before we were married, if I treated her well or did good things, did that make us married? No. What made us married is we made a covenant, a bond with one another, a covenant before the Lord and to one another. Now, once we're married, let's say I don't honor her the way I'm supposed to. Does that mean I'm all of a sudden divorced? No, it means I'm not in right relationship. I'm still married. I'm just not in a right relationship with her until that is dealt with. The Jews believed that the law 
the Ten Commandments, that when you obeyed them, it kept you in good standing with God. It didn't make you Jewish. It made you in good standing with the God you already belong to. Just like when I honor and care for my wife, when I treat her the way I'm supposed to, we're in right standing. When I don't, I'm in wrong standing, but we're still in relationship. They believed the law was how you did that. Whereas Jesus came and to the Gentiles, he says, you're not declared clean. You're not made right by following the law. You have faith and made, are made right because of your faith in Jesus. Jesus separates you. Faith in Jesus is what makes you clean. Now, there are a, a couple different laws, and, and there are three primary laws that take place. Now, you got to remember, the argument between Peter and Paul is ultimately about the Gentiles as unclean. He stopped sitting and Peter stopped eating with them because to the Jews coming, he was eating with unclean people. And Paul is saying, no, no, in Jesus, we're all clean. Say these words with me, I'm clean. If you are in Jesus, if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you are clean. You are righteous. You are justified because of Jesus. Not anything you've done, but what he did. And so as we look at this, these next verses, he's saying, listen, you don't understand. You think it's by the works of the law that you are justified, that you're made clean by God, but it's faith in Jesus that does it. End of story. And that's so counterintuitive because often we struggle with this. Now, in the Jewish world, there were three types of laws. Okay, now we look at these in the Ten Commandments. You have Leviticus and Deuteronomy, parts of Numbers and Exodus is where we find most of the laws that are written. Here are the three types of laws, and these are important for us because we tend to have our own values of these. First one is you have what's called a moral law. Moral laws are the Ten Commandments. They apply to everybody. So I don't think there's anybody in this room that would say murder is okay. And if it is, let's have a conversation. We would all agree. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter if you're in the most remote village of Africa, if you're in the most populated city like Los Angeles or Minneapolis or Des Moines, we universally, good moral people say more, uh, that murder is wrong. That's the first type of law. That's the Ten Commandments. The second laws are what we call civil laws. We have civil laws here in America. They are not moral things. When you speed, are you breaking a moral law? No. Who decided that the speed limit should be 55? People did. If you drive 57, you're breaking the law. You're not sinning in a moral way. You're just not obeying the civil law. We have these things so that we can be civilized. God gave the Jews civil laws. For instance, if someone breaks into your house, when can you defend yourself? If a, a donkey falls into the pit, what are you supposed to do? If somebody has wronged you, if you're in a wrong relationship, how do you handle that? And then the third one, and this is the one that we most often misunderstand, are called the ritual or ceremonial laws. These are what it means to be clean and unclean. God called Israel to be separate from the world. And he said, listen, I'm a holy God. God has no uncleanliness. He is completely holy, completely clean. When you do certain things, you defile yourself. That makes you unclean. Um, we look at the unclean laws and what happened for the Jews in the time of Jesus and the time of Paul, they took the moral and the civil and the clean laws and they put them all together and just said, well, if you're not, if you're not one of the things, you're just unclean. And Jesus came to say, listen, you're not in a right relationship because you follow those. You're in a right relationship because of faith in Jesus. This is what Paul is ultimately trying to get to. Now, 
For a Jew, you didn't follow these laws to become Jewish. You followed these laws because you already were Jewish. There's a scholar and theologian named Scott McKnight who I really have come to appreciate his writing and work. He says this, Jews thought they were God's people because they were Jews. And as a result, God had given them a multitude of privileges. In my opinion, salvation by faith was not difficult for Jews to accept. What gave them grief was salvation by faith apart from the law. For they thought obedience to the law was true faith. We do the same thing. We have our own sets of standards that we say, that's a good Christian. How many of you guys have ever heard the phrase, good Christian? Did you know I don't believe there's such thing as good Christians or bad Christians? I think there are healthier and unhealthier Christians, but good implies a state of being. But how do you measure that? God is good, not people. And so here we look at this and he's saying the Jews actually had no problem had no problem that you were, it was okay to, to work through and say, hey, salvation is by faith. But they didn't realize that it was by faith in Jesus, not in the law. Now, here's what he says next. What they had to learn was that the object of their faith had changed from God's revelation in Moses to God's revelation in Christ. Christ has replaced Moses as the focus of salvation, just as the Spirit has replaced the laws of Moses as the focus of God's will. Okay, now check this out. Everybody look at that wall over here. What's the giant fixture on that wall? See, for us as Christians, we fix our eyes on what Jesus did. We put our faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross, that he who had no sin became sin, that we might have the righteousness of God. But what does faith look like? See, the Jews thought faith was all about these actions and behaviors. That was the evidence that you were a Jew. And what Paul says, no, the evidence that you belong to Jesus is you have faith in that. You have faith that what happened in the cross is enough. But what does faith look like? Okay, I want to give you an illustration here. Um, imagine for a second, if I say I have faith in this chair. I didn't do this in first service. I forgot to bring the chair up. But if I say I have faith in this chair, it's easy to say that. What's the purpose of a chair? It's for people to sit in, right? When you're tired, you sit in a chair. When you're in a conversation, if you don't want to stand, you sit in a chair. Now, if I say I have faith in this chair, I can talk about faith. I can do all the things that, yeah, I totally believe in this chair. Now, here's the thing. That's not the evidence that I have faith in the chair. The evidence that I have faith in the chair is when I'm tired, what should I do? If I say I have faith in the chair, but I don't sit in it when I'm tired, I'm actually showing I don't have faith in the chair. Now, here's what faith looks like. All of my weight is on the chair. It's not on the ground. It's not in my work. I'm trusting that this chair completely holds me. When I say that I have faith in Jesus, it means I'm putting my full trust in the weight of the cross. It's not this. Is my full faith in the chair right now? No, because I'm still holding myself. How many of us go through life, it's Jesus and we do a little bit more. You may have heard this theme over and over again, Jesus plus, right? Well, I have faith in Jesus, but I better do a lot of really good things. I need, I need, I need. True faith is this. Paul is saying that if you have real faith, Faith in Jesus is faith in the crucifixion of the Lord and the resurrection of the Lord. And this is what God has called us to. And it's that faith in Christ that leads us to something different and bigger. Now, it's not actually putting faith in Jesus. It's that that makes you a Christian. Here's what I mean by that. If, if you're not actually putting your faith in Jesus, you're not actually a Christian. If you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, but you do this, you may not actually be a Christian. You might just like the idea of Christ. 
I think there are way too many people in our churches, in our faith communities who think they're Christians because they go to church, they say their prayers, but they don't actually have actually put their faith in Jesus. They're still putting it inside of themselves and in their abilities and what they want to do. And this is the hard part. This is hard because we've been conditioned by our human nature and by the world around us that we're supposed to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're supposed to play a part in it. And what God says is, no, I want all of you. It's faith in this that makes you right with God. Because when you put your faith in Jesus, everything else begins to change. And that's what I've had to learn and I'm continuing to learn because periodically I put my full weight on Jesus and I say, I trust you, Jesus. And then it's so easy for me to want to put my foot down or to walk away and I'll just use him as a crutch. And, you know, and I'm, I have faith in Jesus until I don't. And that's part of the condition. That's all part of that work and the process that all of us are in. Now, listen to what happens. See, for the, the work of Jesus was different than the work of the law. The Jews thought the work of the law, that if they put their full trust in it, that it would somehow make them right with God as Jews, that they would continue in right standing. But the only thing the law did was reveal that they couldn't follow the law. Did you know it's actually harder to follow Jesus than it is to follow the law? Let me give you an example. The Bible says, do not murder. Anybody here struggle with murder? I mean, and now here's the thing. If you have committed murder, and it's a possibility, in Jesus you are forgiven, Okay. But most people have never murdered somebody. Jesus made it harder and said, if you murdered them in your heart, you've already committed murder. Eee, that's a problem. But most of us, the law gives us a check. It's a checkbox. I, I haven't done this. I've never, I've never had an affair. I've never done this. I've never done this. We can check a box, most people. Following Jesus is a lot harder because you know what Jesus says? Instead of, instead of saying, hey, just don't murder, he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He doesn't then explain what that is. He doesn't go into a list of things that you need to do to love your neighbor. He just simply says, love your neighbor as you love yourself, leaving it wide open. This is why following Jesus is hard. Because it'd be so much easier to have a box to check, wouldn't it? Love your spouse as you love yourself. Love that person you don't like as you love yourself. This is what makes us right and clean with the Lord. And this is also why we need Jesus, because the, the old covenant, the laws... The Ten Commandments, Jesus explained that they're not just physical things, they're also inward things. And that none of us can do it well. In fact, we need a Savior that much more. And this is where we need the work of Christ. I quoted this earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who had no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus did something you could not do. He lived a sinless and perfect life, completely obeying the Father in every way, even to the point of death. And he did it so that we could be in right relationship with him. Now, I want you to hear this this morning. If you're not in a relationship with Jesus, if you're trying to do it on your own, if your faith is in everything but Jesus, today is your day. I want to encourage you, come, receive, believe that Jesus has done the work. You don't have to keep on striving to be good enough. In Jesus, you are clean. In Jesus, you can be made whole. And then everything else takes work after that. We're a work in progress. I want to read to you Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is interesting. We don't actually know who wrote Hebrews. Some thinks it was this woman named Priscilla. I think that'd be awesome if it was a female author. I think there's a good possibility of that. Listen to this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence 
to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, the most holy place, if you had the temple, which no longer exists, if you had the temple, the Jewish temple, the center of it was called the Holy of Holies. It was the place that God dwelt. And the only person who had access to that was the high priest. And he had to be bathed in blood to be clean of all sins because if he entered into the Holy of Holies where God's presence was and he had any sin in his life, any blemish, he would die instantly. That's what they believed. And Jesus says, because of his work on the cross, we can enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, listen to these next words. Some of you need to hear this this morning. If you're not paying attention, pay attention now. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Full assurance, put your full weight in it, that you can sit, you can go to the bank on it, that Jesus is enough, amen? With full assurance, you can enter into the holy place. You can have a relationship with God. You don't need that relationship through me. I want you to hear this. I am no different than you. There are some people in the church who think they look at pastors and some pastors who preach this, they try to make themselves elevated I'm not elevated. The message of Christ is elevated. I'm in just as much need of Jesus as you are. The only difference between you and me is I have a calling to preach and teach. That's it. You don't need a Catholic priest. No, I want you to just, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters. They love Jesus. Amen? And because they love Jesus, we're on team Jesus. Go Jesus, right? This is not an anti-Catholic message, but you don't need a priest to forgive your sins. You already had a high priest who did it. His name was Jesus. You now have a relationship with the king because of what Jesus has done. We need each other. Sometimes I confess sins to other people because I need to be reminded. I need to physically hear the words, you're forgiven. But I don't need to go between somebody else to be forgiven my sins. I only need to go through Jesus. End of story. You can enter, draw near with God to a sincere heart with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Say it again, I am clean. Because of Jesus, you are clean. All of your sin, all of your shame is nailed to the cross. Now listen to these next words because this is so critical for us. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. Jesus promised his faithfulness that you can stand, rest assured, have complete faith that when you stand before God at judgment day, you are safe. You are secure in the hands of a loving God through Jesus. But the evidence of that faith is not just emotional or intellectual. Listen to these next verses. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The evidence that you've put your faith in Jesus, the evidence that your full weight is in Jesus is that you love one another, that you do good deeds, not to earn salvation, but because you've already got salvation. Our Catholic brothers and sisters have this right they don't say the word love and good deeds. They say the word charity. Because love is not just a feeling. Love is an action. If I tell my wife that I love her, but don't act like I love her, there's a problem. We're called 
to love. And when we love others and when we do good deeds in the name of Jesus, it shows that we have faith in Jesus. He also tells us that we're not supposed to give up meeting together. When somebody tells me, Jason, you don't need to be a part of a church. Well, according to Hebrews, according to God's word, healthy, mature, growing Christians go to church. They're part of a community. And I need you to hear this. I need you as much as you need me. I need people in my life who are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus just like you do. We are not meant to do Christianity alone. We are meant to do it in community. And this is what breaks my heart. And please hear my heart in this. This is why I'm encouraging you. If you don't have a home, come and join ours. I meet way too many Christians who go, well, I go to this church on this Sunday and then I go to this church and then I go to and they're church hopping all the time. That's like me saying, babe, I love you but I'm going to spend some time with you and now I'm going to go over to this wife and over to this wife and over to this family and this family. That's consumer Christianity. We're supposed to be part of a family of God and if you're only using that family, you're not part of the family, you're visiting the family. There's a big difference between a visitor and a family member. Would you agree with that? We're called to be in relationship with one another and sometimes that means commitment, even sticking through when we have disagreements. When we have conflict, Peter and Paul were still brothers in Christ. I'm heartbroken when I see people who leave a church over one small issue. Well, I don't like that they do this. I had a conversation with somebody recently and, and we were talking and, you know, here's the one thing that I'm constantly reminded of. Um, Zion is not a perfect church. I'm not a perfect pastor and you're not a perfect congregation, but Jesus is perfect. Amen. And so we hold to this and we do it so that we can encourage one another. We shouldn't give up the habit Galatians 2.16, so we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be clean, justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be clean, made right. We look at all the things and what we're reminded over and over again is following the law does not make you right with God. You can still be in a relationship with God, but following the law doesn't make you right. Faith in Jesus is what makes you right with God because as you have faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit begins to work in you and transform you. And the question that I have for most of us is have we actually surrendered our life to Christ? But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? In other words, Paul is saying some people think that if you hang out with sinful people, it must mean you approve of sin. Jesus hung out with really broken people, didn't he? As the church, we should be hanging out with people that are unlike us so we can point them to the hope that we have. Jesus loves you where you are, but he loves you enough not to keep you there. Let me say that again. Jesus loves you where you are, but he loves you enough not to keep you there. Jesus wants to help you become like him. That's the game. That's what we're ultimately aiming for. Listen to Galatians 2.20. We're almost wrapped up here. And, and as we're coming to Galatians 2.20, listen to these words, because this is the crux of what we're all trying to become. And sometimes we forget this. I'm going to invite the worship team up here. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Are you really a Christian, or are you just somebody who likes the idea of Christ? It means what it means to be a Christian is that you have crucified yourself with Jesus. Crucifixion is painful. Getting rid of the old self hurts at times. 
But if you put your full weight in it, you're trusting that with the crucifixion comes something bigger and better. Here's the thing. Without the crucifixion, you don't have the resurrection. Jesus wants you to crucify the old self, to lay it on the cross, to unite it to what he's done, not just so that you die, but so that you can be risen to something new and more powerful and profound and more beautiful. Here's what I want you to hear. See, it's this. It's not just your sin that was crucified on the cross. It was your marital status. My marriage died on the cross with Jesus so that I can be risen into a greater and better and healthier marriage. Amen? My singleness. Too often we focus all of church about married people. We have single people in our church. Single people, let your singleness be crucified with Christ so God can resurrect it to something better and more beautiful. Your social status. There is no rich and poor in Jesus. There are just those who are rich in Christ. Your ethnicity your race, your color, your children, your job, your checkbook, your skills, your talents, your good deeds, all of that is supposed to be crucified with Christ because when it dies with Christ, it's raised to something better and more beautiful. There are people in this room who need to crucify their marriages so that God can do a new work. That doesn't mean getting a divorce. It means laying the hurt, the anger the selfishness, laying it at the cross of Christ and saying, I need more. There's some of you single people who need to crucify your singleness. You think your identity is found in being married when it's not. You're married to Jesus right now. You get to have a relationship in a different way. Some of you, your job needs to be crucified. It doesn't mean that you quit your job. It means you lay it at the feet of Jesus so that God can change the way you look at the world around you. Here's the question that I have for you. What do you need to crucify with Christ? What is the thing that is holding you back from the full relationship that God has for you? What is that thing? Because Jesus has something bigger and better and more profound for you. He wants the old to die so the new could come. Is your vision of the world, your job, of people, of yourself, of your money, of your talents, of your children, of your struggles with health or mental health, your sexuality, are they actually shaped by the vision of the cross of Christ or are they focused mainly on you and what the world tells you you should be? What parts do you need to lay at the feet of Jesus? I want to leave you with this last word and then we're going to come and worship. Jesus said this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Jesus is inviting you to the great exchange to let him be your justification, to let him declare you clean. What if, what if Jesus, what if the cross of Christ becomes the greatest fixing point of our life and in doing so, we want to live more for Jesus? Everything we are, all that we are, is supposed to be crucified to die with Jesus on the cross. The parts that we hold on to are usually what causes struggle, but he does it so that you might have a better and fuller and richer life in him. Amen? Would you stand with me? We're going to close in our worship song and take our offering. But if you have not surrendered your life in Christ, we're going to have people over at the prayer corner. If you want to give your life to Christ today, come. Surrender. If you need prayer for anything, maybe to celebrate, we'll have prayer over there. Let us come and worship. Let us give thanks in all that we are. In Jesus' name, everybody said.
Amen. Let's come worship the Lord.